Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is February the 7th, 2023. It's always nice with books when two quite different worlds come together. Um, earlier this week, we did a show with Thomas Vartanian on rebuilding cyberspace to make it unhackable. He has a new book out, Unhackable Internet, all about technology and hacking. And then last week, we did a show with uh, CNN's law uh, columnist Eli Honig, who has a new book out called Untouchable, How Powerful People Get Away With It. We're bringing Honig and Vartanian's world together in a new book by Bruce Schneier, very distinguished um, uh, computer security authority, best-selling writer, A Hacker's Mind, How the Powerful Bend Society's Rules and How to Bend Them Back. Um, Bruce is joining us. Uh, Bruce, uh, are these two worlds coming together? Are all p powerful people, di by definition, hackers? Not all of them, but but yeah, it's kind of interesting that uh, your uh, your two previous guests are kind of come together in, in my latest thinking. Because what I'm trying to do is take the hacking metaphor and apply it to broader social systems, political systems, economic systems. So it is right. It's about how to build an unhackable society and how the powerful are getting away with everything. That is actually what it's about. And and everybody powerful isn't a hacker all the time. I think most powerful people are hackers some of the time. And by this, and I want to define my term. I, I mean, yeah, hacking I is because we've got a, a definition. What exactly do you mean by hack? Ah, there you go. Uh, so so my definition is something that a system permits, but is unintended and unanticipated by its designers. So in computer terms, you know what it is, right? The computer allows you to do this thing that Microsoft never intended and has all of these consequences. Uh, if we think about the tax code, it's not computer code, but it's code, it's algorithms, and it has uh, bugs. We call them uh, loopholes. It has vulnerabilities. We call them tax avoidance strategies. And there are black hat hackers. We call them tax attorneys. And they're trying to find exploitable vulnerabilities in the tax code to help their clients save money, not cheat, right? I mean, what they're finding is legal, but save so, money uh, on the, taxes. The area, I don't want to make this a conversation about Trump because it gets a bit boring. But Eli Honig, who's no great fan of Donald Trump, acknowledged that he's a brilliant manipulator of the law. I guess in your language, Trump is a brilliant hacker. He doesn't always break the law, but he knows how to skirt it. Uh, I mean, is Trump an example of a particularly sophisticated, insistent hacker? I think yes. And it's hard to know how much of it is, is the person versus the people he hires. Right? I mean, this is one of the ways the rich are better hackers when it comes to these systems. They can, they can hire the expertise. They can hire the people they need to execute their hacks. But yes, he is an example of someone who, when does not break the rule, knows where the gray areas are, knows how to exploit them. And there are examples, you know, in my book, I have examples from, from everywhere and not, not just from politics. 
from yeah. sports. I, I mean, when I think from, of America, okay. it's a system that lends itself to hacking, isn't it? I mean, especially the financial system. There are a lot of tax systems around the world in which uh, a Donald Trump style hacker wouldn't have a lot of success, but because it's so complicated and because if you have a lot of money, you can hire these highly sophisticated, to put it in your language, black hats, uh, you can get away with it. Is that fair? Yeah, I'm not sure how much more sophisticated the U.S. is than other countries. I mean, I mean, you're right. The more sophisticated, complex a system is, the more vulnerable it is to hacking. And U.S. systems of politics, of economics, of finance are, one, incredibly sophisticated and in some cases designed to be tractable by computers. But I you know, couldn't compare that to the EU or Japan. I mean, I have in my book hacks from those countries that that also work. So I, I'm not ready to say the U.S. is unique on the planet, but certainly the more complex social systems are more vulnerable. It's interesting. Uh, you, I don't think you remember, but you came on the show uh, when it was a TechCrunch show uh, back in 2012 to talk to me about... Um, uh, a new book out you had at the time, Liars and Outliers. Uh, 11 years, uh, Bruce, I don't need to tell you, is a long time in the history of tech. We used to idealize hackers, and now, if anything, um, more and more people are, are, are critical of them. Um, to what extent do you think that people like Stephen Levy, who's been on the show, and Tim Ferriss, who, who wrote a book about hacking the body, to what extent did we create a cult around hacking, which has been rather dangerous? Yeah, I think it goes both ways. And, and I try to talk about both in my book, that, that hacking is a way to innovate, that finding gray areas in the rules and using them to your advantage is a fast way to innovate. And the legal system does that. I mean, that's how uh, laws evolve to new technologies, new circumstances, new realities. Through hacking, and then your hack is taken in front of a judge, and the judge says, yeah, I guess that was legal, or no, it's not. So hacking does have a, a positive side. And those books talk about that, that hacking is innovation. And that's what Stephen Levy is, uh, is talking about in his book. And when you think about uh, hacking the body, right? I mean, how are ways that we can make our body do things that it wasn't meant to do but are positive? Right. So, so these are all positive ways of thinking of hacking. Hacking also has negative connotations. So, so it's a criminal who's hacking a computer system to get access you wouldn't get. Or it is a, you know, a, a rich billionaire hacking the tax code to take advantage of a loophole that you and I have no chance of taking advantage of because we just don't make that kind of money. Or Uber or Lyft hacking the regulations to enable them to be cheaper than taxis but with uh, you know, less uh, constraints on how their drivers are. And so there, there is good and bad. And I think a lot of what we need to do is figure out how to enable the positive side of hacking without enabling the, the negative side. And we've largely been able to do that in the computer field, but we don't know how to do that in the social areas yet at all. You talked about good and bad. Can one hack morality, um, Bruce? Is, is morality historically hackable? Do so I'm gonna... the, the rich and powerful do a good job at their fancy universities hacking into moral codes? I'm going to say yes, but it's a complicated answer. So in my book, I do talk about cognitive hacking. 
that ways that our cognitive systems, which are developed, you know, as a species 100,000 years ago for living in small family groups in the East African highlands, just sort of don't, don't apply to 2023 New York City. And you know, examples of how social media hacks our attention, how our, our notions of tribalism are hacked, how our notions of fairness, of, uh, of authority are hacked, how brands hack our notions of friendship, right? They're using those cognitive systems in ways they weren't intended. And I use intended as kind of very loosely because I don't think anybody, there's no designer of sort of us as a species. So yes, you know, you can certainly say that all cognitive systems can be hacked and morality, you know, we can argue that religion has hacked morality for, yeah, for millennia in different and ways. And the great writer on that, of course, was Nietzsche, who, who made a career or a weird career out of, of writing about the way in which the priests have hacked morality. And, and think of it as subversion, right? You know, using the systems in ways they weren't intended. So we feel loyalty to brands and brands are personified in our head. So all the brain circuitry that we have for identifying friends and foes and social relationships that, that, that were developed for humans are being applied to breakfast cereals and to, you know, cartoon characters. And, and those are in a sense hacks because the systems are being repurposed. And if you create a cartoon, you might have an agenda behind it. You might want me to believe certain things that I'm more likely to believe because I think this cartoon character is being honest, which like makes no sense because it's not a, it's not a human and honesty is not one of the attributes it has, but we mistake it for human. Uh, Bruce, you're, as I said, you're a very distinguished security analyst. You've, you've made a career out of making sense of the tech hacking world. You keep on talking about systems. Uh, do you think you bring your own particular sensibility to, to making sense of the world? Because I've never really thought of the world in terms of systems. I mean, we make these systems. So there isn't always a very formal division between us and the systems because they're impacting each other all the time. And, and yeah, so I, I think I definitely do think in terms of systems. I'm not the only one. There's a whole body of literature on systems thinking. And you're right. You know, they are, they are interrelated. They're hierarchical. You can think about a car as a system, but a carburetor is a system. And the car driver road combination is a system. And, and you know, all the cars in town are a system and auto manufacturing is a system. And so all these systems are interrelated and they, they're in larger systems encompass them. So, yeah, when you think of when you start thinking in systems, you know, where the boundaries are can be very fluid and, and in a sense, artificial. And, and we're used to thinking in constrained systems. And we sort of know when we think about, you know, climate that, you know, planetary systems matter at the, at the largest scale. That, that we can affect as a species. Right, right and of now. course, as um, I hadn't even thought of when I was thinking about and reading your book about the environment and, and hacking the, the environment both in a destructive and a, and a constructive way. You wrote an interesting op-ed in the New York Times uh, last month about chat GPT, which we've talked about a lot on this show, hijacking democracy. Democracy, of course, is a classic system is chat GPT, GPT in your mind, particularly in the way in which Sam Altman is developed it at uh, OpenAI, is it a classic hack 
of human intelligence? So in yes and no. So it's kind of interesting that we can very easily mistake its output for human output. And it really shows how much for humans, language ability is a shorthand for intelligence. That for us, if something speaks, we think it's intelligent. And again, you know, think of cartoon characters. I mean, the animals in cartoons speak and, you know, we have no problem imagining that they are intelligent actors. So here we have ChatGPT, which is like not intelligent at all. It's, you know, the world's most complicated parrot. And because it can string sentences together in coherent paragraphs and tell jokes and write songs that we believe it is intelligent and we act like it's intelligent. Aren't we, though, and, Bruce, uh, in yeah, a sense, a lot of us are. Aren't we intelligent parrots too? I mean, we start with an empty slate and we learn as so we go along. Is, that is the other thing we've learned from ChatGPT, how kind of simple most human communication is. I mean, the fact that ChatGPT mimics it so well, I think is less an indication of how sophisticated it is and more an indication of how unsophisticated most human uh, conversation is. So that uh, op-ed, and, and it's interesting, is not really about ChatGPT. And that was the... Uh, the editors of the New York Times who kept trying to stick ChatGPT in, and I kept mm. taking it out, but I had no control over the headline. It really is about a different kind of AI. It is about an AI that could track patterns in lawmaking and understand dynamics between lawmakers and come up with novel lobbying strategies. So not language generation at all, but looking at, at, at systems of governance, systems of humans that are creating laws and taking the place of a human lobbyist who would say, you know, give $10,000 to that candidate or that legislator, and you will get what you want. Like, can an AI do that? And that feels like a useful thing that an AI could do. I, I'm running a, a test right now. I have a colleague here at, at Harvard, the computer science department, and the state of Massachusetts turns out has a very open lobbying laws and lobbyists are registered, and every year they submit data on who they lobbied for, what bills they lobbied, and what position they took. We are scraping about uh, 10 years of that data, and we are uh, trying to uh, figure out what we can learn. Bruce, uh, your video, by the way, has disappeared. I don't know where I'm fixing can... it um, as right now, as, as we speak. Um. One of the interesting things I thought about when reading the book is uh, how the powerful bend society's rules and how to bend them back. But don't people become powerful by hacking? I mean, the two people who come to mind in particular on that front are Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, the two real founders, I guess, of certainly of modern computing and Silicon Valley. Um, they were brilliant hackers in their own ways. So... The, the assumption in your book is, is you have power and then you become a hacker. But isn't it actually reverse? I mean, Zuckerberg is another good example of a man who had an innate ability to hack, move fast and break things. He broke a lot of stuff. He was even upfront about it. So um, are, are some people just built, shall we say, with with the hack in them? Because Zuckerberg was the son of a dentist. Uh, Jobs was a, a, a college reject. Wozniak was just a kid, uh, you know, going to computer uh, events in the Bay Area. They weren't powerful up front. 
So I think, yes, I think that uh, people are, are better or worse at hacking innately. I and mean, I try to teach it in my class here, here at Harvard. I try to teach that mentality. But I don't say that, that the rich are, are more likely to be hackers. I say they're better at it. And they're better at it because they have more raw power to amplify. So, yes, I mean, there are lots of, of, of non-powerful hackers. But, you know, if I come up with a tax loophole, it's much more likely to get closed by the IRS than if Mark Zuckerberg comes up with a tax loophole. Right? He can afford more attorneys to make his tax loophole permanent. Right? He can afford more accountants to comb the tax code and figure out a new loophole. He has more options with his money of how he moves it around, take advantage of any loopholes. So it's not necessarily that he's better at coming up with the idea, but he's better at, at using it to increase his power. So certainly, yeah, I mean, lots of examples of hackers at all levels of the power spectrum. But right now in our society, the rich and powerful are better at using their hacks to increase their wealth and power. Uh, the, the New York Times uh, headline writer um, talked about, in terms of your piece, chat GPT hijacking democracy as a system. What about the issue of hacking capitalism, um, Bruce? We've done many shows on Jeff Bezos and Amazon, particularly with Brad Stone, the almost well, the unofficial official biographer of Amazon and Stone. Are there companies like Amazon that have successfully hacked American capitalism? And should we be concerned with that? So I think we should be concerned. And certainly I look at the gig economy companies, right? the Ubers, the Airbnbs that went into an, in industries with very complex regulations for good reasons and basically pushed them all aside and said, we are different. We don't, we don't count. All your rules don't apply to us. And that was, I mean, totally a hack. And whether it's like labor laws or safety laws, you know, or, or you know, environmental laws, these uh, are things we should be concerned about. Now, you can argue they're innovating because remember, hacks are also innovative. You can argue they are taking advantage of loopholes. Right? What they're doing isn't necessarily illegal. I mean, that's my whole point, that hacks follow the rules but break their intent. So, yes, I mean, definitely – Corporations, especially in this in this age of, of the internet and computers and, and technology, there those are definitely hacks, and and I I think we should be concerned about them. How and, does Musk, just, uh, Elon Musk fit into your narrative? He seems to me uh, these days to be again a man with a genius for hacking, hacking into companies, hacking into programs. The the space program, obviously, into electronic vehicles. Is he another classic example of all the best and worst in hacking? I think also. I mean, I, I don't follow him as much as, as others, but certainly to the extent that he is, I'll use the term, skirting regulations to get what he wants, to get is, is an example of a hack. And then we argue about whether it's a good or a bad idea. And this, yeah, but, and this makes this different than, than, uh, than, window, than computer hacks. Right? There's a hack in Windows. We all agree it's a bad idea, and Microsoft fixes it. Was Christopher Someone Columbus like a hacker? Was Martin Luther King a hacker? Was Adolf yeah. Hitler a hacker? So, I mean, Hitler, I don't think so. Hitler's you know, declaring war, breaking the rules. I mean, I, I, I don't do a lot of – I'm not a historian, so I'm not, I don't know those people's careers and work enough to uh, – to make yes. those so wasn't uh, answers. MLK the reverse of a hacker? 
he reminded people of the rules and reminded them to pay attention. After all, it was the racist South or a racist America that hacked American democracy in the post-Civil War age. I mean, that's certainly true, right? I mean, right, again, right, can you, can you uh, twist the rules to your advantage? And there are levels of hacking, right? There's the, you, can, you can hack the rules. I mean, think of, I don't know, make this up, Uber, right? Uber can hack the rules directly. They can you know, try to get their own legislators elected to get the rules changed. They can, uh, you know, try to work with technologies to get technologies changed. There are different levels you can play. I mean, I think of Jeff Bezos uh, buying the most expensive single-family house in Washington, D.C., uh, basically so he can lobby better, right? so he can take his hacks and try to get them instantiated politics. in law. I mean, where, where's politics in all this? Do you have a, a political philosophy you're particularly sympathetic to? I, I would have guessed Hobbes you would have rather liked. Have you read much political philosophy? Because you're really writing about power. I definitely am writing about power. And, and I think that is the gloss of the book that I really you know, try to put over hacking. You know, if I have a philosophy, and I'm doing a lot of thinking about this right now, it's that uh, the politics and governance structures of today are not really suited for the information age. I mean, yeah. they were fine in the industrial age, right? I mean, they, they're invented around the time of the industrial age. They served us through that. And both politics and economics don't quite work in the information age. And we need something different. I have no idea what that is, and I'm trying to try to research that. You know, also that our that our power as a species is now greater than the controls on us as individuals. And and that's an interesting dynamic. Not, not yet there yet, but you know, with uh, AI, with biotech, with some, you know, some other technologies, we have to worry about individuals and what they can do that will affect the planet in a way we yeah. never have before. I mean, so I'm we, really thinking about the limitations right. of our political system. Well, maybe that will be your next book. The, the, the Times, in the review of the, the Times, they suggested that they found the book a little bit depressing uh, because, firstly, you said it's only going to get worse, and secondly, ha hacking is so ubiquitous that it's hard to figure out how we're going to manage it. Are you suggesting then really we need a new system that democracy, constitutional, 20th, century constitutional legal democracy doesn't work and we need to reinvent a new system for managing our hacking culture? Is that the issue? I think that's part of it. I mean, I didn't talk about that in the book, which is probably why uh, it, it's a little bit of a downer. I try to talk about defenses and I talk about how hacking can be used by the defense and how the techniques of hacking can be used to actually prevent hacking of things like laws. But I think there are some real conversations we need to have as we think about AI and processes replacing humans in different ways, that we think about uh, ways that we subvert systems and whether our, the ways we detect that subversion is suitable. You know, right now, our ability to patch tax loopholes isn't very good. It can take a decade if the loophole is you know, something that like Congress made a mistake and it's in the law that there is this loophole. You know, it could take decades to fix, if ever. And that is increasingly becoming untenable. So it, it, it's hard to know. And it's interesting, you, you mentioned the New York Times review. I actually, like standing here, have not even read it yet. So, wow. Why well, I have to read it. Um, I do. Would it be fair to say that there are, again, and I'm throwing around terms now, inventing them, hacker states. 
I mean, Putin's Russia is a hacker state. North Korea is a hacker state. Iran seems to be a hacker you know, state. I, I don't think so because because those are states where the the person in charge like just makes new rules at whim. So that's not the same as hacking, right? Hacking isn't breaking the rules. Hacking isn't changing the rules. Hacking is following the rules but subverting their intent. All right. So example from sports, 1975, someone shows up on the Formula One racetrack with a six-wheeled car. Everyone says, you can't have a six-wheeled car. And they say, here's the rule book, show me. And the rule book is silent on the number of wheels a car could have. That's a hack. Ultimately, the though, rules, don't we have some sort of moral code. I mean, ultimately, the only way to control this is to, and I'm, I'm not sure if this is the right word, trigger our inner morality. Because we all know that that's really, I mean, true. Maybe there is no formal law against bringing that car to the racetrack, but it's, it's immoral. It's cheating. Right, right. It's, it's not cheating, it, 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 but, but we sense that it's cheating in a way that's not cheating. And you're right. So we might be able to do that in Formula One racing, right? If all the other teams say, you know, we're not going to race if that car is on the track because it's obviously unfair, right? Then it wouldn't work. But if it's a, if it's a tax loophole, what are we going to say? I refuse to pay taxes as long as, you know, Peter Thiel gets his billion dollar deduction. That's not going to work. So, you know, sometimes we can, sometimes we can't. It really depends on the system and how it works and what the mechanism is for updating the system. Right? The Formula One Race uh, Commission, and I don't know if they have a French name, I forget what it is. They're in charge of the rules and they are dictators on what the rules are so they can fix it. Microsoft do the same thing with its code. Right? It's harder for a tax loophole, a regulatory loophole, a finance loophole. Finally, Bruce, I know you've got to go. Um, this is all of great concern um, on the financial side, on the political side, uh, on the tech side. Uh, as you say, you're still searching for a more systemic approach to this issue. But in the very short term, do you have one or two very concrete ways that we can address this problem of hacking? Uh, and particularly the way in which the powerful bend society's rules and, and, and to borrow some language again from your subtitle, how we can bend them back. So I think the first thing is to be aware of it. I mean, in the book, I'm trying to point out that this is a way to think about society and how the rich and powerful bend rules. So I think that in itself has a lot of value. Knowing what's going on, being able to name it, having a taxonomy. Is, is powerful and a good first step. And then it is recognizing that they are hacks and then bringing to bear some of the defenses we have in the computer community and some of its patching and red teaming, you know, ways that we deal with computer hacks. They are applicable in, in the broader uh, societal space as well. Like the red teaming a new tax law would be a great idea. Figuring out better ways to patch would be a great idea. You know, and for, for us right now in the US, it's the regulatory agencies that are the best at patching. I mean, they are the most agile. Because really, this is a question about agility. You know, how can government society be more agile? Right? Be as agile as the software on your phone, which gets patched, what, every week or so? Excellent.